0: The Ark of the Covenant was a physical token of God's presence. Obviously, God says about the mercy seat, which was on the cover of it, There I will meet with you. And that gives us the idea that it's associated with God's presence. But also the idea of the High Priest not going whensoever He pleases into the Most Holy Place or else God would strike him dead, also reiterates that God dwells in the most holy place. And the only piece of furniture that was in there was the Ark of the Covenant. And we're told in Leviticus chapter 16 explicitly that it is indeed at the Ark where the Lord dwells. He tells the high priest not just to come at any time, into the holy place inside the veil. For, for he says, I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. We are to understand that the ark is where God dwells. Now obviously we know the Lord does not dwell in the temple made with hands, etc. We understand God's omnipresence and so on and so forth. That's why I say that this is a token of God's special presence with the Israelites. The Lord has always been everywhere. Inside the most holy place, outside the most holy place, out in the wilderness, and so on and so forth. But in terms of where God says that His uh, presence is specially to reside, is in the most holy place, and specifically over the Ark of the Covenant. This is the point, or pardon me, this is the place where God dwells within the Israelite camp. So where is God in the ancient world? In Israel. Where is God in Israel? In the tabernacle. Where in the tabernacle is God? In the most holy place. And where in the most holy place is God? Over the Ark of the Covenant, in the cloud above the mercy seat. Much later in biblical history, the Philistines recognize that when the Ark comes into the camp, it is as good as saying, quote, a God has come into the camp. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 7. Now obviously they have a polytheistic view, so they say, a God. But they recognize that when the Israelites go get the ark and bring it, God has come into the camp of the Israelites. And so they steal the ark. Because they're like, well we want to have that God on our team. We don't want that God to be on their team. We we don't want him to be among their army. We want that God to be In the midst of our army so let's steal the Ark so that their God will be with us instead of being with them the problem for the Philistines is that Yahweh is a holy God and just as an unholy person cannot enter his presence you can't just waltz into the most holy place so God cannot tolerate dwelling in the presence of an unholy people So it's no better for the uncircumcised Philistines to go steal the ark as it is for the high priest to go improperly into the most holy place. Both of those are problematic. So God strikes the Philistines with a plague. And the Philistines' god, Dagon, falls face down before the ark. I love that story, and you can go read about it in 1 Samuel chapters 4 to 7. They come down in the morning and their God has fallen down in front of the ark. So they presume it's a coincidence and pop him back up. And then the next day they come back and he's bowing down before Yahweh again. And so the Philistines learn that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is not to be trifled with. And neither is the symbol of his presence. However, the Israelites had to learn that same lesson the hard way too. in bringing back the ark eventually from a temporary location where it had stopped on its way back from the Philistines after a long while they decided to bring it back up to Jerusalem and as they were going the oxen stumbled and a man named Uzzah put out his hand to touch the ark to steady it and the Lord struck him dead Yahweh is not a god to be trifled with Nor is the token of his special presence Some of you may recall Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark there's a, there's a, It's a fanciful movie, but there's a scene in there which I think captures at least Something of the true nature of God's holiness One of the Nazis who find and recover the Ark of the Covenant, opens it to look inside it. Basically to make a long story short, his face melts off. This is something like the holiness of Yahweh. And it's, it's, a, it's a far more accurate portrayal um, to, to represent God's holiness as being a face melting holiness than it is to represent God's holiness as being sort of a goody two-shoes kind of upstandingness God's holiness creates a big problem for sinners because if God is truly holy then God cannot dwell among an unholy people God cannot just abide in the midst of unholy people indefinitely as if that was a sustainable situation as the Ark itself is the token of God's presence the tablets of the Commandments within it are a token of God's holiness so inside the Ark of the Covenant was placed the Ten Commandments and so the Ten Commandments summarize God's righteousness and God's righteous expectations of us. So, we could say that in a physical and spatial way, the tokens which represent God's holiness in the ark is the commandments. And so, it's by virtue of the fact that God's law God's unyielding, written-in-stone law is in the ark that makes it so that sinners just can't reach out their hand and touch it. So that uncircumcised Philistines just can't go and steal it and act like, now we have the God of Yahweh in our camp to work for us. No, no, no. The Ten Commandments render that problematic. Because wherever the ark is, there the law of God is. And wherever the law of God is, there sinful men are condemned and deserve to die. Now, unlike the objects pertaining to the tabernacle, the lampstand, the table of the showbread, even the ark of the covenant itself, the mercy seat, The altar, the curtains, the clasps, so on and so forth. Unlike the objects pertaining to the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments do not properly pertain to the tabernacle, but actually transcend the tabernacle. When God giving instructions for the creation of the tabernacle the Ten Commandments have already been given so we see here in the book of Exodus that chapter 25 is the beginning of the construction of the pieces of furniture which will go inside the tabernacle but the testimony which is Referred to in verses 16 and verse 21 (coughs) Refers to the Ten Commandments which already exist and already have been given (coughs) The Ten Commandments predate the tabernacle and we've seen and we've developed in other sermons over the last number of years that the, the Ten Commandments actually even predate Sinai That you couldn't have false gods in the Garden of Eden. That you couldn't murder, which is why Cain was guilty. You had to keep the Sabbath day because God instituted that in Genesis chapter 2, verse 3 and so forth. So, the Ten Commandments are from before the Sinai covenant. And though the Ten Commandments are put inside the ark, inside the tabernacle, the Ten Commandments are not actually objects which pertain to the whole tabernacle system so what this means is that we don't use the same lens for the Ten Commandments as we use for the rest of the ceremonial law which is as we saw a couple of weeks ago these are copies of the true things so the lands Are copies of the true things the altar is a copy of the true things and so on and so forth but the Ten Commandments are not copies of the true things the Ten Commandments are the true things we could turn to Luke chapter 18 to corroborate this point a man comes to Jesus and asks him a question good teacher What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. So in other words, what Jesus is saying, He's saying, you want to know how to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Jesus points this man to the Ten Commandments. Now, we know, obviously, that Jesus isn't suggesting that he go try to keep the law unto life. But he is showing the hypothetical connection between keeping the Ten Commandments and having eternal life. Just as in Luke chapter 10, Jesus answers the same question by saying, Love the Lord your God, and love your neighbor as yourself. Again, Jesus is not... Suggesting that the most efficient way to get to heaven is go try to love God and love your neighbor. But he is pointing out the hypothetical connection. If you love God and neighbor properly in Luke 10, or in Luke 18, if you keep the Ten Commandments properly, yeah, you're going to inherit eternal life. The Ten Commandments are a standard of God's righteousness from Genesis all the way to Revelation. The Ten Commandments, then, are the true things. Not copies of the true things. This is God's law. Progressive revelation doesn't apply to God's law. So progressive revelation applies to God's gospel, to be sure. In Genesis chapter 3, when mankind sins, God promises that a seed of Eve will crush the serpent's head. Theologians call that the proto-evangelium, or in other words, the first gospel, the proto-gospel. And throughout Scripture, we see clearer and clearer revelation of God's law, or pardon me, of God's gospel, until we see the fullness of it unpacked in the New Testament, in the writings of the apostles, explaining the significance of what Jesus did. By contrast, God's law is revealed up front. We see it codified and written down at Sinai, But we see retroactively that those same commandments have been in effect since the beginning. And so God's law is established in the first place, given unto mankind, written upon his heart at creation. It's God's gospel that gets clearer and clearer with time. Now, this is all going somewhere, by the way. I'm going to give you some... Seemingly unrelated ideas, and then I hope to tie them together now The tablets are tokens of God's holiness God's justice the tablets are Reminders that God is holy that we are sinful the tablets are condemning of sinful man a reminder that God won't justify sinners at the expense of his holiness But remember we saw last Sunday evening that the mercy seat is where God condescends to meet with sinners, that their sins may be atoned for, and that He might meet with them. What I want to point out today is the harmony, then, of law and gospel in the revelation of the Old Covenant. The tablets tell us of God's holiness and of our sinfulness. The tablets remind us that we can't just waltz into the most holy place and lay our hands on the ark whenever we feel like it. The tablets remind us of God's holiness and our unfitness, our sinfulness, our undeservedness to be in the most holy place. But at the mercy seat, the blood of a substitute... Atones for our sins so that a holy God may meet with us anyway God won't justify sinners at the expense of his holiness But by means of the ceremonies pertaining to the mercy seat God addresses the issue of his own holiness So that he may condescend to meet with sinners anyhow and so the Ark of the Covenant is this piece of Tabernacle furniture in which there is very clear law and gospel symbolism. And you see that God's law tells us what we ought to be. It tells us what God is. It tells us how short we have fallen. It condemns. But when we come with the blood of a substitute who takes the punishment that we deserve for the breach of God's law, that blood flows to answer the demands of God's law so that we could actually come into the holy place and meet with God who has condescended to dwell among us. You should see the harmony of law and gospel in the Old Covenant. Now I want to take you on what will feel like a tangent and a significant one. But it's going somewhere, as I say. Many people read Revelation 4 as the beginning of Revelation, or pardon me, as the beginning of history, um, or the beginning of the New Testament age, and Revelation 22 as the end of the New Testament age. Revelation chapter 1 is where John sees the glorified Christ. Revelation 2 and 3 are the letters to the churches. And so many pick up with Revelation 4 and they say, okay, this is the beginning of the New Testament time period or the church age and Revelation 22 is the end. But I want to briefly overview the book and show you that it's actually cyclical. Revelation goes in cycles. Let's look at Revelation 5.2 where... Well, 5, 1 and 2. Where John sees in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Now, what is going to be in this scroll? If we look back at Revelation chapter 1, what is going to be the content of this book? Revelation chapter 1 and verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants, quote... The things the things that must soon take place. So, what is going to be in this scroll then is the things that must soon take place. In other words, the unfolding of history. And I saw a mighty angel, this is five, chapter five, and verse two again, proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And in any case. We read that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's in chapter 5 and verse 5. So we start with the seven seals. Okay? I'm not going to go through each one of them, obviously, but look at the sixth seal, which is in chapter 6, verses 12 to 17. I'm not going to read all of that again for the sake of time. But look and see that there are cataclysmic events. I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, etc., etc. People hiding themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling on the mountains, the rocks fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now look at chapter 8 and verses 1 to 5. And this is the seventh seal. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. We're coming to the trumpets in a second. Another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, etc., etc. Now look at verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, And filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Okay, so cataclysmic events at the sixth seal. And then thunder, lightning, and earthquake at the seventh seal. Now we come to the trumpets. The sixth trumpet is in chapter 9, verses 13 to 21. And again, for the sake of time... I won't read it, but you can look at it yourself. Cataclysmic events at the sixth trumpet. And then at the seventh trumpet, which is in chapter 11, verses 15 to 19. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever etc etc and down to verse 19 then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple you might guess that we're going to circle back around to that there were flashes of lightning rumbles peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail so again cataclysmic events at the sixth and then at the seventh earthquakes lightning and peals of thunder chapter 12 well, let me, let me pause here and say, the seven bowls, I believe, is the things which must soon take place, starting with the beginning and working to the end, bowls one through seven. Then it starts again with the trumpets at the beginning and works through to the end. So the seventh bowl and the seventh trumpet are both referring to the end of things. And you see the parallel language to indicate to us that we're looking at a a series of cyclical parallel events. So, if at the end of 11 is the end of all things, the 7th trumpet, we should expect chapter 12 to begin again, right? Now, look at chapter 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, etc., etc. Obviously, we don't have time to get into all these details. But look, that would be the beginning of... The new testament age right with the birth of christ again then we go through to chapter 14 which concludes with the reaping of the earth in other words the end again uh, chapter 14 and verses 14 to 20 and you can read that yourself there's a huge battle uh the blood uh flows from the wine press, as high as a horse's battle bridle as high as or as far as 1600 stadia. So again, chapter 12 to 14, the beginning to the end. Next is seven bulls, which are plagues poured out by the angels. In chapter 16, verses 12 to 16, we see again cataclysmic events and the assembly of the wicked at Armageddon. And then chapter 16, verses 17 to 21 is the seventh bowl. And again we see flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake. So again, we're going around in circles here. And we're repeating the same events from different angles. And we're looking at the unfolding of the things that must soon take place, according to chapter 1 and verse 1 from different angles, from beginning to end, beginning with the first century, which was the time that it was written, and then encompassing the things that must soon take place until the end, when everything is wrapped up. Chapter 17 begins the New Testament age again, the end of chapter 19, Uh, concludes the New Testament age chapter 20 begins the New Testament age again all the way through to the end of 22 where the, the New Testament age is concluded obviously tonight is not an exposition of the book of Revelation but I just wanted to show you that pattern because and here's where we go back to chapter 11 if that's correct what I just told you then at the end of chapter 11 we're actually looking at the end of all things even though we're halfway through Revelation because we're looking at the events connected with the seventh trumpet then God's temple verse 19 Revelation 11:19. then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple there were flashes of lightning rumblings peals of thunder and earthquake and heavy hail Here's the point of this. If the Ark of the Covenant shows up in an age which is the copies of the true things and is instructed to teach us, and if what it is instructed to teach us is about the inviolable holiness of God via the Ten Commandments, and yet, though God will not justify people at, ex- at the expense of His holiness, God has devised a way to answer the demands of his holiness such that he may actually condescend to meet with sinners and that's what the mercy seat teaches us about so the ark teaches us about the law and about the holiness of God and at the same time the ark teaches us that God is willing to condescend to meet with sinners as we saw last week sin itself is not a deal breaker in terms of meeting with God. God has prescribed a way in which sinners may approach Him, in which He may condescend to dwell among us, to be our God, that we might be His people. And so law and gospel work in complementary ways throughout the scripture. Neither one ever succeeding at the expense of the other. But the gospel answering the law's demands so that God may be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. But the law, not getting the last word over the gospel, when the appropriate sacrifice is offered, the law must relinquish its demand upon the sinner. For the blood has efficaciously made atonement and answer the just demands of the law. So the gospel never succeeds at the expense of the law, and the law never succeeds at the expense of the gospel. But there is law and there is gospel, and they're in harmony in the old covenant, and then the Ark of the Covenant isn't mentioned for a great swath of biblical history, and then all of a sudden in the book of Revelation, at the end, God's temple in heaven is open, and what is there? The law and the gospel. At the end of all things, we see in this book full of figurative language, we see this picture again of the law and of the gospel, which tells us that the scheme of salvation has never changed, the design has never changed the method and the mode of meeting with God has never changed. At this early stage of biblical history, God was holy and inviolably so, and could not just wink at sin, and sinners could not just waltz into His presence, but the blood of a substitute must flow to answer the just demands of the law if God was ever to condescend and meet with sinners at the mercy seat. And in the end, God is inviolably And God is not just going to wink at sin, but the blood of a substitute must flow to answer the demands of the law so that God may justly meet with sinners at His mercy seat. Now remember, the law is the same all the way through. But the Old Covenant lambs were copies of the true things. And so progressive revelation tells us that we need to understand The mercy seat differently in Revelation. The tablets of the law abide written in stone forever. But we need to understand the development of the mercy seat motif which is what we looked at last week. We don't hope that on that last day whether God descends to us or raptures us up, as your eschatology may be, our hope is not that there will be a lamb nearby, a bull or a goat nearby that we may quickly slaughter to make sure that we are right with God on the day of judgment. Our hope is that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that one that John the Baptist pointed out. Our hope is that His blood has efficaciously flowed and has sprinkled the mercy seat and has made atonement for us, that we may be right with God on that last day. The presence of the Ark of the Covenant in Revelation shows us that throughout the scripture, from the beginning all the way through to the end, these are central concepts, law and gospel. And understanding that the New Testament Gospel isn't God is not quite as holy anymore. And isn't really nearly as concerned as He used to be about your sin. And that His standards have lowered. And there aren't quite so many laws anymore, so you can take it easy. That's not the Gospel. The progression from Old Covenant to New Covenant isn't that the law has changed it's that there is a better land. The progression refers to not what's inside the Ark of the Covenant. The progression refers to which blood is sprinkled upon the mercy seat. But the basic schema of salvation remains the same from the beginning to the end. Law and Gospel. The Gospel never succeeding at the expense of the Law, nor the Law succeeding at the expense of the gospel but the law making its just demands and if those just demands go unanswered then a sinner perishes in hell forever but if those just demands are answered then that sinner is reconciled to god and there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus so remember that the copies of the true things were given to teach the israelites And we also read a couple weeks ago when we looked at that lens at which we're to view the Old Testament ceremonial laws, that the things that were written down were written down for our instructions upon whom the end of the ages has come. So when we see the ark centrally in the tabernacle, that foremost place where God dwells, the physical center of Israel's worship, We are to understand just how central law and gospel are to the worship of God's people. Or just how central law and gospel ought to be to the worship of God's people. We ought not to go, well, that has nothing to do with us now because we're in the New Testament. We ought to go, how do we keep the law and the gospel central in our worship? So that when we see, as it were, (laughs) the Ark of the Covenant revealed... In the heavenly temple, we're not like, where did that thing come from? We thought that had nothing to do with us. We're like, yeah, we understand those themes to be central. And in our earthly worship, though we don't have an Ark of the Covenant before us and a physical mercy seat, we recognize the law and the gospel as being fundamental to our faith, central to our faith, as they were central and fundamental. And a major focal point, the major focal point of Old Covenant worship. So they ought to be for us in New Covenant worship. Understanding nevertheless the progression of Revelation in terms of the lambs as copies and shadows of Christ, who is the true Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world.